Man, if you're with us this morning, I'm glad you're here. We're getting ready to kick off a new series. And by getting ready to, I mean, you are in the driver's seat, front of the roller coaster. It's about to blast you into the book of 1 John. Uh, We had several months that we've walked through the book of Genesis, and now we're going to go to the backside of the Bible and catch something in 1 John this morning. And I'm excited about uh, where we're going to be going the next few weeks. And so if if you've got a chance to go ahead and start flipping in your Bible, or if you've got a tablet or smartphone, Um, uh, We're in the New Testament. We've been in the Old Testament. We've been in the New Testament. This is uh, where God revealed the fullness of his covenant in sending us Jesus Christ. It's not a separate God. It's not a separate promise. It is the fulfillment of God's ultimate promise to send a redeemer. And so we're going to be looking in the book of 1 John. Now the subtitle of of the series is Abiding in the Light. You're going to see over the next several weeks as we walk through 1 John about what it means to live in the light of Christ because the world around us is in darkness. It is in uh, it, it is in utter disarray. You do not have to watch CNN or Fox News or uh, Channel Two Action News. You don't have to read the Atlanta Journal Constitution or the the Noonan Times Herald or uh, does Fairburn have her newspaper monthly publication? Um, uh, You don't don't have to read the news to see that the world around us is broken. So I'm excited about how 1 John starts shaping our hearts according to the gospel, according to the good news. So if you've got your place in 1 John chapter 1, I'm going to invite you, if you're able, to stand with me. We're going to read the first four verses together, and we're going to look at this proclamation and joy together. And he says this, what was from the beginning... What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life and the life that was manifested, we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, that you may too have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write that our joy may be made complete. Let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for eternal life. We thank you, God, that we have faithful witness and testimony of who Christ Jesus is, what Christ Jesus did, and how we together are united with you because of the cross. But Lord, this morning, I know there's someone here that's never trusted you, never given their life to you to follow you. So Lord, I ask this morning that you would encircle them with your Holy Spirit, that you would draw them to you. Lord, I know that there are men and women in this fellowship in this time, in this community, in this family, in this room right now that have given their life to you, Father, but the world in its darkness has tried to encroach on the light. Lord, give us a clear message from you today as we seek your word. Father, we love you and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. In 2011, April 2011, NBC, the TV channel NBC, launched a new reality television show. 
Now, this was just one of many singing competition shows. As you know, back in 2003, American Idol got it all started. A singing competition promising those aspiring artists and musicians, those back, those uh, backstage, back room, nobody knew they could sing. They come out and they sing and everybody gets all happy and excited and start making their favorites and they try to win this competition, hoping that they're going to get this record deal. Now, I don't particularly care for these shows. I love music but I could do without all of these shows I used to like watching the first few weeks of American Idol back when they used to show the people that were really really bad it always made me feel better about myself when I watched them but I used to love but I used to watch that Christy would say let's watch American Idol and I'd watch it with her for the first like four weeks and once it got past all the bad people I was like yeah you can have the rest of it but in April of 2011 NBC put a new nuance on this singing competition when they issued a, or, uh, released a show called The Voice now here if you've never seen The Voice here's the premise there you have four judges that are in these roller coaster chairs and they have their back to the stage and all they know of the person who's singing is their name. And someone comes out on stage and they give their best Frank Sinatra impression and try to croon and win over the judges and if the judge likes what they hear, they hit the button on their chair and it flips them around really fast like that. Now, if two judges spin around or three judges, or all four judges spin around. They spend the next few minutes haggling with the contestant over whose team is that person going to be on. Uh, you've got a country singer, you've got a rock star, you've got kind of a pseudo pop singer. And, and in the early days, you had CeeLo Green. So you had, you had a little R&B mix in there. And so you kind of figured out which genre do you th- do, am I going to fall into and which one of these judges is going to be able to help me. But the idea was that it would not be based on the appearance of who the singer would be. And so the judges had to focus on a couple of things in that audition. They had to focus on auditory clarity and vocal beauty. They had to pay attention to the voice. They had to pay attention to exactly what this person's ability to sing truly was. That's kind of a cool thing. That's kind of a cool thing to be able to listen to a voice and get some direction. And, and so, so you listen to the voice and you watch the show and you try to figure out whose voice is going to carry. Because ultimately at the end, there's only one voice that will stand. The reality is you and I have several voices in our lives. We've got friends, we've got family, we've got teachers, we've got bosses, we've got employees, we've got news channels, we've got all of the internal voices that wage war in us. And it makes me ask a question of all of us today is, what about God's voice? Does does God have a voice? Or, Or if God does have a voice... Do I hear God's voice? That second question is both pragmatic and theoretical. And and, and I'm not one that, I do not believe that God has this audible voice that he speaks to us. I do believe that by his spirit, he impresses on us his will, his desire, and we can sense his voice in that regard as we we know him, as we fellowship with, with God, and as we spend time in prayer and in scripture. But Maybe the pragmatic question that we have to ask about that is, do I allow God to speak in my life? 
See, too often, the voices that we follow are voices outside, voices that are in the world and give us more of the world's advice and not where God would have us to go. And I believe that 1 John catches this head on. I believe that John tells us right off the bat that the voices that you and I listen to, the voices to which we give an ear, are of extreme importance. It is extremely important to understand the voices that we hear each and every day. Notice where John starts here. He says, verse one, what was from the beginning? Man, John is really going hard here. He's really trying to get back to the, 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 the very beginning. When I went through this the other day, I had not had this conversation with my daughter. But yesterday, my, my daughter and I were, were running a couple of errands. We'd gone to Walmart, grab a couple of things, and just out of nowhere, she's five. You never know what's gonna come out of a five-year-old's mouth. And, and she just asked, Daddy, how do people know how to talk? And I'm sitting there thinking, my first thought was, well, you've had lots of practice. Um, but I said, well, their, their mommies and their daddies teach them how to talk. She said, I know, but who taught them how to talk? I said, well, I said, my mom and dad taught me how to talk. Papa Shep and Bibby taught mommy how to talk. We taught you how to talk. She said, but, but who, who taught all them how to talk? I was like, all right, I'm just gonna get to the bottom of this really quick. You remember when God made Adam and Eve? You remember learning about that? She wasn't there. She doesn't remember. Like, hey, I remember that. I saw that. You remember learning about God making Adam and Eve? Yeah. Well, when God made Adam and Eve in his image, he gave them the ability to talk. So God taught Adam and Eve how to talk. And then they taught their sons, Seth and, and Cain and Abel. They taught their sons and they taught their families and on through. And I thought that was going to be the, enough for her. And she said, but daddy, who taught God how to talk? If any of you have an answer, my email address is evan at fbcfairburn.com. John goes to the beginning. And I don't want us to miss the structure of this passage. If, you, if, you've, if you've been through sermon series with me before, you know I'm pretty big on sermon structure and, and how, how the passage looks because I believe that it is intentional that God placed these words on these pages for us to digest and understand for the purpose of Christ's likeness. So in order to catch what he's saying, I think we do need to understand the overall structure. And so you go all the way down to verse three. All the way down to verse three, it says this. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you. The voices we listen to are of extreme importance because the voices to which we give ear proclaim something. They are telling a story. They are giving some sort of information. You can go to the history of the world and, and as my daughter asked this question, who taught people how to talk? You have to start looking at the history of oral, trans, oral traditions. So you've got so many cultures even today that don't have a written language and they pass down their history through oral communication. You have, you have uh, several thousand years of the history of Israel, a couple thousand years of the history of Israel that are passed on orally before Moses puts the Hebrew alphabet together sometime around 2000 BC. 
And, and so it's not until then that all of these, all of the Old Testament, the book of Genesis and what we have through all of Genesis is actually written down because the voices communicate. The, the voices communicate in many ways. Think about, think about all the ways that you've misread text messages and emails, right? Somebody sends you an email and you're like, that guy's kind of a jerk. And you ask him about it and he said, no. And you talk to him in person. You talk to him through, through, through the voice and the voice has inflection. The voice has, has, has a way to uh, give emotion and to give reason and to help us understand. There's so much communication that goes through the voice. For example, I love my wife. I love football. If I said it that way, one, I'm coming to your house to spend the night tonight, but two, you're thinking that he doesn't care as much about his wife as he does college football. It's the same words, right? But the voice shifts. See, voices proclaim, voices communicate, voices help us understand. And what John says is, we're proclaiming something of true value to you. What are they proclaiming? And he goes, what was from the beginning. I don't want you to miss anything. I'm writing you this letter and I want you to see that what I am putting is not a cool story I picked up somewhere. It's not something off the latest newspaper. This is what was real from the beginning. That's pretty important, isn't it? That is very important. And to add some weight to what he's describing, he modifies what was from the beginning. And he says it this way. He says, what we have heard. He's using sensory language. What we have heard. Not, not what we have heard about. Not, not, not something that we, we heard in passing. What I heard. First person. I was there with Jesus Christ. I was there when this whole movement of the gospel started. I heard the teaching. Second, he says, what we have seen with our eyes. He was physically, I'm just picturing John as he's writing this. I was there when I heard Jesus give that sermon on the mountain. Good grief, it shook my life. Man, I was there. I watched him touch that dead little girl and she rose again. I watched him spit in the mud and rub it in that blind man's eyes and he was, he was made up. I was there when his told his mama, this is your son now. He's going to be taking care of you and gave his life up on the cross. And I was there three days later when the cloth was on the, in the tomb, but the tomb was empty. Ooh, and I was even there when we were all scared little children hiding behind the locked door and all of a sudden there he was and said, Thomas, come and touch the holes where the nails were. I saw it. What I've seen with my eyes. Now, you can hear something or think you hear something. You can see something. Be pretty sure that you see something. But John goes one step further. Look at what he says. What we have looked at and touched with our hands. So he goes, he goes auditory, he goes visual, and he goes tactile. He says, it wasn't just that I was standing up there. It's like, yeah, that looks like Jesus walking over there. I thought he died. Look at him. He's just walking. That looks so nice. He knew it was Jesus because he had the white robe with the blue sash. That's how he knew it was Jesus and, and the glory shining around his head. That's, that's how he is in all the Sunday school pictures, right? 
white robe, blue sash, glory around his head. So that, that, that's how he knew. That looks like Jesus. No, no. I was able to touch. I, I was able to physically hear, see, and touch what is real. I'm glad that John wrote these words. Under the authority and inspiration of God through the Holy Spirit, I am glad that he put these words on paper as an assurance that what he is saying is real because it is important. But all the voices that are around us don't push this. They they push artificial, fake news. That's what we're talking about, right? Fake news, what's fake they want to push something that, is, that subverts the truth and subverts reality. The, the, the voices we hear can be real, but a lot of times they're, they're, they're fake. So, so how do we tell the difference? H- how do we know the difference between the voices that are real and the voices that are going to drive us somewhere else? I've got a couple of questions that are there on your paper. The first one is this. What message are these voices relaying to me? What message are these voices relaying to my heart? How are they they hitting here? Notice what he says here. These things that we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life and the life that was manifested to us. What he is doing is bringing the gospel right back to the forefront of our heart because the gospel then provides a filter for all the voices that we hear. The gospel speaks and brings life. We had dead hearts of stone that God replaced with a heart of flesh. That was the promise of Ezekiel 37. I'm going to take that hard heart. I'm going to remove it and I'm going to give you a heart where my spirit can reside because I am the God who is giving you life. He said, so this is the word of life. And, and, and when we have this living heart where the spirit of God resides and Christ Jesus is right there, it provides this filter because the voices around us are going to attack. And you think, well, it may, how are they going to attack my heart? Well, what are, some of the, what are some of the voices? You've got performance-based voices. Performance-based voices are going to tell you that you have to do this, this, or this to be accepted or valued. So, so you, have to, you, have to, um, you have to engage in this kind of activity. You have to have this kind of outward persona. And if you're not a part of this, then, then you're not performing up to standard. That's kind of how we go after jobs, right? You want to get a promotion, you work really hard, you prove yourself, and then you get a promotion. You work yourself really, really hard there, and you, you, you give everything you can to your job, and, and you get promoted again, and then again, and then somebody else buys the company you're working for, and they realize we've got too much middle management, so they cut your position, and all that hard work's gone. And when they cut your position, the first statements that you say is like, look how hard I have worked and how well I have performed for the country. I'm uh, the, the, the company. I'm of value here. These are performance-based voices. What about monetary voices? 
Well, if you don't have this many zeros at the end of your salary, if you don't have this kind of figure in your, in your, in your, in your checkbook, in your savings account, if you don't have this 401k or this IRA or this, this investment here, if you don't have this boat or this yacht, or if you don't live in this kind of neighborhood, if you don't drive this kind of car, all of these things that are some sort of financial elevating status, they all say if you're not here, then you don't have worth or value. And, and it breaks my heart when these kind of lies creep into the house of God. I, I, I want you to know, if you are a member of our church, if you have given your life to Christ and you have united with us as a, as a member of this fellowship, then you have equal status to everyone. It doesn't matter how much money you give to the church. It doesn't matter. There are churches where if you don't give to a certain level, you don't get a vote, you don't get a say. You're not shareholders in a corporation. If you've got 50% of the shares, yeah, you get a bigger vote in your corporation. But God doesn't work that way. The gospel unilaterally applies across everyone. That's why James goes as far as he goes to say, look, if you're giving the rich man the best seat, making the poor man stand over there in the corner, you're showing favoritism and you're in sin because the gospel knows no bounds. You don't have to fall to this false voice of that you need certain status in order to be accepted. Ontologically or the way that we relate to one another. Man, You've got to have this social group. You've got to be a part of this. Man, I got a, I got a flyer in the mail this week. And most of you know we live down, uh, down on the north side of Noonan. And I got a flyer in the mail this week, man, advertising this, man, this wonderful, luxurious social status to be able to pay to be part of this club where I could play golf in these golf courses. Can I tell you a secret? When Pastor Ben left last year to go to Kentucky, that was the first time my golf clubs had seen the light of day in about eight years. Oh, but it looks so good. Man, I could be part of this country club. Oh, I got two golf courses I could play at and I could, oh my goodness, I could do this. Man, if I could do that, I'd have it made. That is a status relationally based level that we try to ascribe to because the world buys into that system. But that's not what the word of life is. Parents, you fall victim to it. Unless my kid is involved in this or my kid does this, I can be honest with you. I used to joke, one of my things I tell people, my goal as a parent is to not end up on a talk show one day. That's one of my goals as a parent. I don't want to end up on Mari Povich or uh, I don't even know who all the, Donahue, used to be Sally, Jesse, Raphael and, and, and Donahue or Geraldo. That's one of my goals. I don't want to end up on one of those shows as a parent, you know? Because if you end up on one of those shows, you've done something pretty bad. You've done something pretty wrong and your kids are kind of messed up. In all seriousness, parents, we're guilty of putting this social expectation, this false voice, giving it such a big ear. And we do it in the church. Man, if, if my kid doesn't know all of these Bible verses or all these books of the Bibles, then, then, then they're, not, they're gonna end up, you know, you know, doing bad stuff. I was about to throw out a couple examples, but I decided not to. They're gonna end up running with the wrong crowd. We put this pressure when all the gospel compels us is just make known who Jesus is. Yeah. 
Teach your child who God is in Christ Jesus. That's the standard. You're not, you, you can't make your child believe. You, you can't make your child not get in trouble at school. Some of you wish you could. I know my parents did. You can threaten them all you want to. I'm living proof that they will make it through no matter how much trouble they get into in school. Theologically, we do it. I've got to do this for God to accept me. I've got to give this or I've got to knock on this door or, you know, I'm not good enough to come to church. So let me get my life together and then I can go to church where I can be, be accepted. These are false voices that we allow to enter into our heart and they speak to us and they oppress us and they hold us down. When the word of life says no from the beginning, this is what John saw, what he heard, what he touched, that Christ Jesus came and gave his life that all all, everyone could know that God loved the world and sent his son to die because he, he loves us. The second question we ask is, what effect will this voice have on my view of God? What effect will these voices have on my view of of God. Notice what he says here. He says, verse 2, the life was manifested. We have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and manifested to us. A couple of observations here. First, he shows us that eternal life has always existed with God. It wasn't this afterthought. It wasn't that, oh no, Adam and Eve broke things. Oh, I've got to come up with something else. No, it's always been there. It was with God and Jesus Christ, eternal life was given to us through Jesus Christ. As it says, it was manifested to us. It was made real to us. It was put in the physical that we could see, behold, and understand. That was from the beginning. God didn't have a plan B. We have plan B. Plan A, don't end up on a TV talk show. Oh, we're on a TV talk show. Plan B. It wasn't me. I couldn't make the kids' choices for them. That's plan B, right? We, we, we always have plan B. The ba- God didn't have, Jesus wasn't God's safety net. Jesus wasn't that, oh man. Jesus was plan A from the beginning. Eternal life was always with God. He says it very clearly that the life was manifest. We have seen, testify, and proclaim to you this eternal life that was with God that he gave us. See, the voices of society and the world that we are prone to give a larger ear to in our lives are going to tell us the exact same thing that Satan has been breathing for millennia. That God doesn't really love you. That God is not going to hold you accountable. That God doesn't want you to be happy. That God really doesn't have it all figured out. But the gospel says in the beginning was the word. And the word was God and the word was with God and by the word were all things made that have been made. And the word became flesh. 
Can I just be real with you for a second? I am not a prophet, okay? I just want you to hear that. Um, There is a prophetic office to being a pastor, not that I'm going to stand up here with this new revelation of God. Um, It is very clear in Scripture that uh, this is the revelation of God, and if you add to it, you are in contempt of God's holiness and his righteousness. So there is no new revelation. What I will do is expound upon the revelation that's already there. That is the prophetic office of a pastor, to be able to say, this is what the word of God says, and this is what the word of God means. So let me just very clearly tell you how you hear wrong voices and adjust your thinking towards the scripture. I want you to understand that God has placed such immense value on you individually that if you were the only one to ever profess faith in Christ, Jesus still would have died just for you, period. I want you to hear very, very clearly that God's plan of salvation is not exclusive to just those in-house, but it is available to the world, and we have the responsibility to receive and to, co- to, to compel others to believe, but ultimately, the choice remains ours whether or not we're going to accept his gift. But I also want you to know that you have not out God's grace yet if you're not in Christ Jesus there comes a time when God says and it's very clear in the book of Romans chapter 1 when God says okay have it your way that's what you want go for it apathy of God is the strongest form of physical judgment that he could give says in Romans chapter one, they wanted that, so God turned them over to their desires and let them have it. I believe our nation is at that brink where God is about to say, you know what? That's what you want, have at it. And when that becomes the case, we like Britain, we like Rome, we like Greece, we like the Ottomans, we like every other major factor in civilization will collapse. Which is why it's important for you and me, the people of God, to hear the voice of God, to know what God is doing around us and push back the darkness. Because God loves us. God wants us to know who he is and what he has done. And John says, this is why I'm writing. I'm proclaiming to you how good God is. Let's see it. Because it's ultimately all about the gospel. And because it's all about the gospel, we've got to see what the gospel does. The gospel brings to us a binding fellowship. It brings a fellowship that, that, that bonds us together. It brings us into this unified circle. So what is a fellowship? See, fellowship is like the most Baptist word ever. You know, we, we, we had, uh, last year, we had a revival through Southwestern Seminary Revival Services, and, and uh, the student pastor that came was uh, uh, Ernest Bogard. And we did the same program through Southwestern at our church in, in South Carolina before we came here a couple of years before. And uh, I knew the guy that was the, the preacher that came. Uh, his name was Daniel Diggert. He was, a, he was a, pre- a Baptist preacher's son, grew up in it. And I tell you, man, 
everything with that guy was fellowship. Fellowship this, fellowship that. Man, I'm having breakfast at Cracker Barrel. We've been fellowshipping with the waitress. And I, I was fellowship with this. And this guy called me today. We had good fellowship on the phone. Fellowship, fellowship, fellowship. Everything was fellowship. See, in Baptist circle, man, if you just say there's going to be food, that's a fellowship, right? See, see, that's, that's what, hey, we're going, have, we're going to have a fellowship. Yeah, that's right. Bring the chicken. We're going to have a fellowship. Uh, we need some cover. No. Fellowship, rightfully understood, as Danny Aiken of Southeastern Seminary points out, is a common experience for a group of people. And in the case of 1 John, it is the celebration of the word of life at work in us. And so John goes on and says, hey, what, I have, what we've seen and what we've heard, the reason we're proclaiming it to you is that, that you may have fellowship with us. And not just with us, because our fellowship is with God the Father through his Son, Jesus Christ. What John is bringing to the table now is not a pot pie. What he's bringing to the table is this unifying bond that is to be about God's people. God's people celebrating God's work week in and week out. That's what the gospel does. And John said, I'm, I'm writing this to you because I want you to see how beautiful it is because the church will thrive in this common bond of faith. The, the church itself will, will grow. The church itself will begin to reach into the community. It is this common bond of faith that draws others into what we have going on. There is no such thing as a growing divided church, Period. When, when there's division in the church, usually it goes the other way. It becomes a decimated church that splits. As we talked about in our college Sunday school class this morning, most of the time that's because of some root of selfishness. I've talked with guys that are interviewing at churches for pastor positions and it's funny to me when I'm talking to them and they're interviewing at a church that has just gone through a split because it's the same story every single time. Well, all the people that were causing the problems are gone now. It's always the same story. Well, of course that's what they're telling you. <laughs> well, you know, those guys had it right, but we ran them off and we're gonna keep all the junk in house. You can be our pastor. They're not gonna tell you that. And, and it doesn't mean that both sides, and it's never the case that both sides are exactly 100% wrong. There is never an absolutely wrong and an absolutely right side. There's usually some, some mix. It might be 95-5, uh, but, but there's some mix. Because ultimately what brings division, James tells us, is our selfishness, right? But see, the opposite of selfishness is selflessness, which drives unity. And John says, look, I, I'm not sure, I'm, I'm not sure what's going on in the church where John's writing this letter. I, I read like seven different commentaries about it this week and all seven of them gave a different uh, reason for John writing this letter because ultimately doesn't know, we don't know. He doesn't say, hey, I'm, it's not like Paul in 1 Corinthians 5. Hey, I'm writing to you because you have this kind of immorality going on right now. That, he doesn't address that. But, but some believe that the audience that John's writing, this church, has some division. 
And it could be a theological division. It could be cultural division. We're not exactly sure. But he's bringing it all back to why are we doing this? Because there is a common bond of faith. And when our church comes back to the point where we see, you know what? We're in this because of what Christ Jesus has done. Nothing but the gospel can bring this. Then the church is going to thrive. But we've got to remember that our greatest union is with God through Christ Jesus. Our greatest union as a church is not just each other. Hey, we sit on the same pew. Hey, we both like bringing green beans to the fellowship. No, the reason our fellowship, notice what he says. He says, we proclaim to you that you may have fellowship with us, but our fellowship indeed is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We don't have church just to have a gathering. We don't have church because we need to get stuff done. That's why we have like city council and meetings like that. We're together because we have the bond of the gospel, the bond of our faith, because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to God the Father except through me. I want you to be part of this church, this family. If you're visiting with us, I want you to be part of this membership, this family, this fellowship, this place where you can connect. I've talked with people that have joined our church over the last couple of years, and there's just, there's just this, this connection. People just, we, we got nice people around here, but I don't want you just to be here because people are nice. I want you to be here because you have united with God through Christ Jesus, and you see what his work is doing among all of us. See, a lot of times churches stymie and stall, not because they don't love Jesus, but because they lost a passion for the gospel. They, they have allowed the connection to God through Christ Jesus to kind of be just this effect of salvation and not the driving point of why we do what we do. And maybe what we need as a church, and I'm talking specifically First Baptist Church of Fairburn, I'm not talking Southern Baptist, I'm talking about American, Baptist, American Church, I'm talking about us. Maybe individually what we all need to bring to the table is a God-oriented passion for the gospel to go forward in magnificent and new ways. John says, this is why I'm writing. Because I want you to see what the gospel does when God's people take it seriously. They take their fellowship with God seriously. And look at verse four, it says this. These things we write that our joy may be complete. See, proclamation and harboring truth yield joy. When we proclaim truth, when we harbor truth, when we allow what the gospel has done to be what is central, it's going to yield joy. Now, I'm going to be real with you. I struggled a little bit with this verse because it seems a little self-oriented, right? We're only doing this so that we can be happy. We're, we're proclaiming this so that our joy can be complete. And I started looking at what John's saying. He puts that at the end of this idea of fellowship. And I don't think John is writing about himself or the group of Christ followers that are around him as he's writing this letter. I believe 
that John is demonstrating what happens when people hear and receive the gospel, when the voice of God becomes the primary voice in life, that it brings all of us joy. That it brings the new believer joy. That it brings the the saint who's been walking with Christ for 40, 50, 60 years joy. To see the fellowship expand and the fellowship extend. Not to see the numbers grow, but to see the lives that are changed and transformed. I believe that what John is describing here is what happens when heaven erupts, when one sinner repents and comes to faith in Christ. That when we proclaim truth, when we harbor truth, it brings joy joy in us the most joyful Christians I have ever known in my life are those that are active in proclaiming the gospel letting others know who Christ Jesus is I have never met someone who is active in sharing their faith and talking about what Christ Jesus has done and didn't have joy the grumpiest church members I've ever known have no desired drive whatsoever to talk about the gospel, the good news with anyone. Not even in their Sunday school class. Oh yeah, yeah, I got saved, I was baptized, yeah, whatever. Literally, that's what comes out of their mouth. Hand motion and all, it's like a T-Rex. Sorry, ADD. But it's our joy because the good news of Christ in us has gone forward. It's our joy because we see how God uses us to bring transformation through the gospel and others. It's our joy because Christ is magnified. It's our joy because heaven's voice has been raised in adoration of the king. So this morning, I just want to ask you about what brings you joy, where you're trying to find joy. Some of you this morning have never trusted Christ Jesus, the one who was given from the beginning of time as the only means to reach God, to come to him, is through Christ Jesus. And this morning, I wanna give you an opportunity to drown out all the voices. There's gonna be voices right now. If you've never trusted Christ, these are the voices that are gonna be here. Oh, no, you're okay. You don't need to worry about that. Uh, today's not the day, uh, man, it's, it's already 12 o'clock, we, you gotta get somewhere. The voices are gonna give you every single reason to say, oh, no, no, no. And, and there, here, here's another big one. Well, well, you don't remember, just remember what you've already done. You, you know, you've, you've gotta work on your life before you can come to Jesus. No, that's a false voice, that's artificial. I want you to come, I'm asking you to come and, and give your life to Christ because your sin will keep you separated from him for eternity but his blood will take away all that sin. Some of you this morning are sitting here. You're, you're hearing my voice because I'm up here with the microphone. You're, you're, you, you've given your life to Christ, but there are about 30 other voices sitting around the table that speak, you get allowed to speak longer and louder than God himself. And, and you need to repent. You need to hit the mute button. You need to remove the table and come back to where God is the only voice that you hear. And the voices that are at your table are gonna say, you don't know how to do that. You're, you're too weak, you're too frail, you can't do this. You, you, you've got this going on, this is not the right time. You're, you're, you're set for this promotion, this job opportunity, this whatever. 
Any voice that does not confirm to you that you need to draw closer to Christ, closer to the cross, is a false voice. And I'm going to ask you to come and just kick the voice out. Symbolically, just kick it out. Put it, put it up here on the altar, give it to God, and allow his voice to reign. Some of you think you've got it made. Yep, God's the only voice that I ever listened to. I want you to be careful with that. Because it might be your voice that is pridefully shielding the voice of God from your heart.